and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zhoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute along with... David Burohaj. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, as always, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we are joined by Ambassador Richard Kautzlerich, um, who is a distinguished visiting professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at the George Mason University, 32 years career in the Foreign Service, and among others, ambassador to Bosnia-Herzegovina and to Azerbaijan. Ambassador, it's great to have you with us. I wish I could tell you welcome to the Eastern Front, but you've been around the Eastern Front for much, much longer than we've had this podcast. We want to take advantage of having you with us to talk about the South Caucasus, and we will not grill you with the basic introductions into the South Caucasus, because we already did that last week when we had another colleague joining from Germany this time to focus on the South Caucasus. But on this podcast, we don't talk enough about the region, and to what extent, and maybe this is a point to start, to what extent this is part of European and transatlantic security calculations. Maybe we can start with where we are post Nagorno-Karabakh 3. Maybe we can start here and ask, as we've already discussed, where we were. And if some of our audience is not sure, I would refer them to the previous episode. I'll turn to Ambassador Kozlerich to tell us, in the current era, post-Nagorno-Karabakh, let's put it that way, winners and losers. Of course, we're looking at the three Caucasus nations, and I'm sure we'll dig into them in depth. But the major discussions, of course, here in Washington, D.C. and beyond are about the regional as well as the external powers, Russia, Iran, the United States, the West, the EU. You you separate them, EU and U.S. So where do you want to start us off? I don't like to talk about post-Karabakh because I'm not sure we're there yet. I think that we could be thankful for the fact that there is no more military action taking place, but we still have you know, between 100 and 120,000 Armenians who were expelled, and I will use the word expelled, from Karabakh to Armenia itself. And they are a challenge for the international community to provide assistance for, for these people, but also for Armenia to decide what not only what are they going to be doing, you know, for the future of, of the uh, Armenians from Karabakh. So, you know, I think we're in a, a period, it, it's very hard to sort of look out in the future and say it's clear what's going to happen next. We've just had the visit of our brand new Assistant Secretary for European Affairs at the State Department, Jim O'Brien. And in keeping with the breadth of your interest in the Eastern Front, Jim was very active with Madeleine Albright in the post-Dayton process in the West Balkans. So he, in a sense, he comes new to the South Caucasus, but not new to the elements of post-conflict uh, settlements. Uh, so uh, he was just, just in Baku. He may still be there today. I'm not sure exactly what his travel plans were, but 
we met with and Alia because things are not at their greatest point in U.S.-Azerbaijan relations. Part of that stemmed from his appearance at the House Foreign Affairs Committee meeting that took place about Karabakh. And he said some things which I think were quite appropriate about we can't go on business as usual with Azerbaijan until, and this is the part the Azerbaijanis forget about, until there's a meaningful peace process in engaging both Armenia and Azerbaijan, something that was, wasn't happening yet. So we're at a, a difficult and uncertain point, looked at narrowly from the U.S. point of view. There was a a meeting conference, I don't know what the best way to describe it was, with some you know, 50 or 60 uh, international so-called experts on the South Caucasus in Azerbaijan. And at that meeting, Aliyev sort of took questions and answers about the future. And, you know, basically he said, the ball's in Armenia's court. You know, we don't intend to take uh, Armenian territory to kind of deal with that accusation that uh, with some cause people have, have made that Azerbaijan is not finished with military action in order to gain a transportation corridor between Nahichevan and Azerbaijan itself that could go through Armenia, the ideal point, or uh, go through Iran, which raises a whole set of other issues, not only for people in the South Caucasus, but given the Israel-Hamas war for external powers as, as well. So, you know, it's a difficult situation. Is it as bad in terms of bilateral relationships as it ever has been? I've seen some commentators make that point. I, having lived through the early days of the Section 907 restrictions on assistance to Azerbaijan, would say it was pretty bad <laughs> then, too, because... Uh, the father of the current president, made it very clear that uh, what the United States Congress has, had done was unfair and unjust to Azerbaijan, that we were not thinking about the hundreds of thousands of Azerbaijanis who had been pushed out of the territory of Azerbaijan, but also out of Karabakh since the mid-90s, kind of echo of what we hear today from the Armenian side. And, you know, we, we were not sure what we were going to do. Energy was, was the one issue that saved us. And I think it's interesting to, to think a little bit about how the energy relationship has changed. Because in the early 90s, there was a hope that, along with Kazakhstan, the, the oil from Azerbaijan would turn the Caspian region into the next Kuwait or some other you know, major oil producer. Unfortunately, or fortunately, that didn't turn out to be the case. And today, the energy relationship with the U.S. in particular is not the same as it was in the 90s. Energy is less important for the United States. Now, we can talk about you know, Russia, Ukraine, the impact of the war on gas supplies for Europe and Azerbaijan can play a role, but it's, it's a relatively minor role. And so that, that's kind of where we are now. I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd be able to answer the question in, in any shorter way just because of the complexities. I'd be interested in your take on Aliyev in particular, who, you know, has been on kind of on a winning streak over the last couple of years. And maybe maybe that's giving him too much credit. But Erdogan can't control him 100%. Obviously, the Russians can't. He plays footsie with the Chinese every now and then. And his, his military has been predominant 
in the last two conflicts with Armenia, despite whatever exactly role the Russians were playing. So, I mean, his prospects and his ambitions seem to be increasing with the eating, so to speak. But I'd be interested in, in your take on you know, whether he's done with Armenia and what other ambitions he's harboring that we may not fully understand. Yeah, you know, I think he's he's full of self-confidence right now, as you point out, in terms of military action. He's He's been remarkably successful going back to the 44-day war, to the one-day counter-terrorist action that, that resulted in the expulsion of Armenians from Armenians from Karabakh. You know, people who are more informed about the military situation than I might have a different take on this. But you know, I think the key difference in terms of his own confidence is that the Russians did not intervene in the same way that people were expecting them to intervene, given the security agreements, treaties that they have with Armenia and the long history of supporting Armenia against Azerbaijan. And I think the Azerbaijanis didn't expect to be as successful as they were just a few months ago in taking the rest of Karabakh. They are, thanks to Turkish training and, and supplies that go back several decades now, that that relationship between the two militaries is a long one. And the military equipment that they've continued to receive from Israel, you know, has allowed them to kind of showcase what they think is Azerbaijan's military prowess. There's kind of loose talk about Azerbaijan being the, whatever, number 10th military power in the world or something like that, which may be exaggerating things. But the risk now is, my goodness, they've put all this money into strengthening their military with, with a key objective of returning the, the occupied territory, including Karabakh, to Azerbaijan's sovereign control. Uh, they've achieved that objective. What's next? I have argued, people say I'm probably overestimating or living in the past, that Azerbaijan needs an external enemy in order to keep domestic you know, opposition and focus elsewhere. And so if uh, you know, they have Karabakh, now what? Well, what Ali have denied is the case, maybe the case, <laughs> that they do in fact decide that uh, they're going to solve this corridor business, Zangazar as it's known by seizing territory in Armenia, if not, you know, going all the way, basically removing, not unlike the Russians in Ukraine, removing Armenia from the map. And you can find, and these, these things don't happen by accident. I mean, people talking about referring to Armenia as West Azerbaijan, going back to history. I, one thing I learned in the Balkans was never get into a discussion of history with anybody. And I learned that in the Caucasus too, because everybody has, has their own particular version. There's no way of swaying them from that. But the line now on, on some of the more extreme media pieces that I've seen is that Armenia you know, ha has no sovereign basis for existing. It always was part of whatever Azerbaijan was. Well, Azerbaijan never had a sovereign basis for, for existing as an independent entity either, but if you want to argue that point. You know, that's kind of the, the real risk here is that uh, that we're not post-Karabakh. Well, maybe we're post-Karabakh, but we're not post 
Azerbaijan, Armenia conflict and why Jim O'Brien and uh, Secretary Lincoln had been so insistent on getting these discussions between Armenia and Azerbaijan going. I have a twofold question. First, I want to come back to something you alluded to, which is domestic politics of Azerbaijan. Our colleague at AI, Leon Aaron, has this account of the shift that happened in Russia in the late noughties as the oil revenue-based model of sort of kleptocratic governance stopped delivering predictable increases in prosperity for ordinary Russians and therefore President Putin turned towards this grievance-driven patriotic mobilization that then resulted in in, in the war in Ukraine. I, I wonder if there is a parallel that you can observe in Azerbaijan? And if, if, if not, what would be the right way of understanding this sort of aggressive turn in, in Azerbaijan's policy towards its neighbors? And my second question has to do with Armenia proper. So it strikes me that similarly to Georgia after the Rose Revolution, there is a growing understanding in Armenia that they want to be part of some community of European nations broadly, broadly understood. And it's also I would suggest in our interest that they be helped in that effort. Now, as you suggested, they live in a very dangerous, complicated neighborhood. I wonder what are the things that the current administration in Washington could be doing and, and our European partners could be doing that they are not doing to help Armenians and Georgians indeed on their path towards getting closer with with you know community of European democracies, if you will. You know, I think the problem with Georgia, and I, I don't know Georgia as well as obviously I do Azerbaijan, but this idea of keeping Georgia on the path in a sense with Ukraine and now Moldova toward toward EU membership, nothing has happened up to this point at least to suggest the Georgians are going to be backing away from that path. And so I think whatever we can do as external partners with Georgia to help them meet the very uh, detailed requirements that will lead to EU membership, we should be doing. And I'm not convinced that we're going to be able to do much more than that. 2008 war between Georgia and Russia was not a happy experience, certainly for the Georgians. I think part of that was brought on by winks uh, from certain U.S. officials that left Shakashvili believing that the U.S. would basically protect them from Russia. I think Armenia is in a bit of a different position. Azerbaijan and Ukraine have gone through you know, these swings <laughs> between Russia, the West, particularly Europe, but also the U.S. And, you know, you can go back even just a few months ago when Azerbaijan was very anti-Russian and, you know, more pro-U.S. Armenia was pro-Russian, not anti-West or anti-U.S., but it was, you know, depending on keeping Russia happy because it felt that Russia would ultimately was going to be the security guarantor for Armenia. And Azerbaijan has is, is really vacillated between the two. I mean, at this, this conference where, that I mentioned earlier, I heard a, a bit that Aliyev said, well, we're not interested in being part of the EU. That's just not what we're about. And that, in a way, has been kind of consistent with the Zeri policy. I think in part because the EU will have uh, standards that it's going to expect countries like Georgia, Armenia, 
if Armenia would join this uh, to meet in terms of human rights and democracy. And Azerbaijan doesn't want to be held up to those. It doesn't want to be held up to those standards. So uh, the difference is Azerbaijan has the energy resources. You mentioned that, uh, you know, the energy resources that allows them a certain degree of independence when it comes to you know, relations uh, relying on the Western countries. One thing that I think we have to be careful of, and I'm very nervous about French uh, desire to provide military assistance to Armenia. And some of the comments that I've heard coming out of Brussels, where there might be, you know, some kind of security relationship between the EU and, and Armenia, I, I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake from from the EU and ultimately from the French point of view. But it kind of puts Armenia potentially on the path that Georgia was on in 2008, where they're going to expect that if the worst happens and Azerbaijan becomes a military threat again to Armenia, that the EU and, and France uh, will come to their, their rescue. I just don't see, see that happening. Yeah, I don't think we should be, or the Armenians should be careful to not confound military help or even selling of, of weapons with actual alliance or partnership aid. You you touched a couple of times now on energy and how key Azerbaijan is in this. And you mentioned a bit earlier that the West's response to Azerbaijan versus Armenia years ago was bound by energy calculations. How is the West now overall, and I'll get into the differentiation in a second, how is the West overall now bound or not in your understanding by that? We don't have a neat relationship between the United States and Azerbaijan, but Azerbaijan is principal supplier to Israel of energy. And so that creates an indirect relationship to the United States in terms of Azerbaijan energy. But it's also that from Azerbaijan's Caspian shore runs the only pipeline that from east to west into the European market that is not controlled by Russia, the Trans-Anatolian pipeline, or depending on the segment, as you want to call it. And you has been shopping around or looking around uh, the Caspian in relationship to Azerbaijan, but also in relationship to Kazakhstan and, and beyond. And I know you and I talked a little bit about this offline a while ago, but would you paint us a picture of the energy aspect here and how that binds or not external actors, particularly the EU, I would say, but also to what extent this is part of the calculations with others in the region? The Caspian region was never going to be, after the, the international oil companies began developing the resource, they quickly discovered that it was an important resource, but not an overwhelmingly important resource. It wasn't sort of in the, the standard of, of Kuwait, which which people used at, at the time. And it was important for developing, basically finding out how much oil and gas there was and getting it to market. It was important for Western oil companies, energy companies in particular, to be involved in the very early days. In the early 90s, mid-90s, when I was in Azerbaijan, we had all of the major U.S. oil companies, Chevron, Mobil, Amoco companies, some companies uh, in that list don't exist anymore. Obviously, BP, Total was there. And it was a, a real active process that led to the building, as you point out, of the only pipeline that would bring that resource to Western markets that was not controlled by Russia. And so geopolitics figured in in a big way. 
fast forward to today, oil may be important to Israel, but you know, there's a global market for oil. Israel can actually buy oil from countries other than Azerbaijan. So it's not, at least at this stage anyway, you know, there's no boycott that prevents as, as during the 1973 Yom Kippur oil boycott, there's no boycott on selling uh, to, to Israel. And gas has replaced oil as you know, the commodity of greatest interest right, right now. And Azerbaijan is producing about as much gas as it can. If you know, people can fact check me on this, but if, if there's a gas market of 100 billion BCM in Europe for, for natural gas, Azerbaijan can produce about between 10 and 20 BCM. It's important, but it's not, it's not critical. The fact that the U.S. has been able increase its own gas production and export LNG has changed the game. The pipeline was important in the 90s. Today, the pipeline is not as important as it was then. There was some hope that maybe Kazakh and Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan could join together and their combined gas resources could move beyond that 10 to 20 BCM range that Azerbaijan contributes. That hasn't happened. Turkmenistan in particular sells its gas to China. And the Chinese have their own reasons uh, for wanting to make sure they don't lose access to that supply. So, you know, it's a different energy picture. We have to be careful about putting this into a, a global perspective, looking where that the energy that's being produced would go as a natural market, which is still to the West. But the fact that there haven't been any major new resources in either Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan that are that have been brought on board since the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, doesn't appear to be, energy doesn't appear to be the factor that it was in the 90s. The Benkwa's ghost at our feast so far is Iran. Again, another complex and, you know, sort of series of troubled relationships with South Caucasian countries, particularly Azerbaijan. One reads, you know, variously that they're about to normalize relationships and that they're, you know, remain at daggers drawn. Can you walk us through where you think the needle is pointing today? So that's uh, one of the really interesting questions because Azerbaijan, you know, one day it would appear that they're going to go to war with Iran because of uh, military pressure from from Iran along that, that now new border area. And then they have you know, meetings at very high levels with Iranian officials and are talking about building this transportation corridor along the border with, you know, through Iran, along the border with Armenia as opposed to. Let me just say that historically, there's not a natural relationship positive between Iran and Azerbaijan. A lot of mutual distrust historically because the large numbers of Azerbaijanis living in, in northern Iran and the fact that uh, Iran has been almost as strong a supporter of Armenia as Russia is, and you can argue, well, they haven't provided military equipment like Russia has to Armenia, but, but still in terms of general support, political support, unhappiness with Azerbaijan, and in some cases, I think actually trying to undermine the Azerbaijani regime because of its ties with Israel. This relationship with Iran is very tricky. They share interests in the Caspian Sea, and obviously they share interests in terms of the Israel-Hamas war. If I can add a little bit to that before you go on, on the one side, Iran has been an ally or supporter of Armenia. 
Armenia. On the other hand, when it comes specifically to Nagorno-Karabakh throughout 2020, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly throughout 2023, the one day, whatever we want to call it, the exodus, uh, the war in the exodus, Iran has been continuously messaging this line, Tehran really, of, but we support Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, as in we support Nagorno-Karabakh being recovered by Azerbaijan, for those of us that don't know all the nuances. And so the Iranian position vis-a-vis the Nagorno-Karabakh issue in, in reluctance sort of to help Armenia or to position themselves politically more pro-Armenia is that fear of Azerbaijanis in Iran possibly turning against Iran. Iran, or why is it that Iran has been so careful in the South Caucasus, sort of threading a careful line? Well, since the the breakup of the Soviet Union, Iran has gotten used to a a certain set of borders. And what it, I think, fears most, especially as Azerbaijan, you know, you hear this this kind of talk about a Zangazar corridor that it would control through Armenia. The Iranians get very unhappy with that. And they've made very clear that they will not support any transportation routes that would go through Armenia, uh, linking Nahichiban and, by extension, Turkey to, to the rest of Azerbaijan. I, I think they have historical reason to be to be concerned about their Azerbaijani minority, there's substantial Azerbaijani majority in northern Iran. Don't forget, right after World War II, the, the Soviet army occupied that large swath of northern Iran where the Azerbaijanis, and there was a, a provisional government that had been set up uh, for that part of Iran, been ultimately a, a separate separate Azerbaijan. That didn't turn out, but, you know, as, as I think we understand, you know, historical memories are, are long. And, you know, the Iranians, quite frankly, don't trust Azerbaijan. Strikes me that every conversation in Washington sooner or later turns to China. And I wonder what, if anything, you can tell us about China's role, if, 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 if there is one, in that strip of land between, between the two seas. And, and is there anything that, you know, U.S. policymakers should be sort of paying attention to, worrying about, or pushing back against? You know, that's an interesting question that I've not really answered myself, is why China hasn't been more involved. You know, when you talk about Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, I mean, the Chinese have major investments in pipelines and making sure they have access to that market. But they really haven't jumped the, the Caspian yet. To my knowledge, could be wrong. I don't think there are any major Chinese uh, energy investments in Azerbaijan. And their effort to try to develop a relationship in Georgia, controlling uh, one or more ports there, has kind of fallen on the same problems that we see the Belt and Road Initiative in other parts of the world. Chinese will provide loans and you know, equipment to build up facilities like this, but they expect to get paid back. And paying back loans is kind of a novel concept for these countries, particularly Georgia. I guess the, the sort of two conflicting views that I, I occasionally get possessed by are the following. is this vision of Aliyev as kind of a classic playing off 
all ends against the middle and trying to manipulate all the outsiders to his advantage. And then also, I don't know how to to evaluate exactly sort of the axis of weevils, as Walter Russell Mead calls them, meaning the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians, or the axis of autocracies, if you will. And whether particularly Aliyev thinks maybe I should get on that train as a way to, you know, keep the West off my back and become kind of a junior partner in this arrangement that'll multiply my power and so on and so forth. I, I just can't seem to sort this picture out in a way that I can't change my mind about 30 seconds later. So I toss that mess in your lap and ask you to solve the puzzle for me. Well, I, I don't want to give too much credit to, to Ilham Aliyev. I mean, his father really knew how to balance. Either Aliyev was very good at this. And, you know, he just, Ilham thinks he's good at it. And I'm, I think the, the book is still out as to whether he's that good. But, you know, don't forget the complication of Russian-Iranian relations. I talked about Iran and Azerbaijan, but these people go back to the, the Persian Empire and the Russian Empire period, where there are still there are still nationalist voices in Iran that says it was a mistake for us Persians to give up Chechnya and sort of, we forget how far the Persian Empire went, you know, to Russia, and, and this is our land, and we own the Caspian just as much as Russia does. So there, there's that kind of historical legacy. And this is very real for I, my experience, very real for people in the region to look back on, on this kind of imperial competition and throw the Ottoman Empire into the mix, too, if you really want to have a mess. But you can't get away from history. You know, you can have this, these common interests that tend to be very short term that would you know, put Russia, Iran, and to a certain extent, China agreeing on more things than disagreeing. But when it comes to things like energy cooperation, not so much between Russia and Iran. And as I said earlier, I don't I don't know how far Chinese ambitions really are going to go. There's a lot of you know, talk about east-west transportation corridors. These areas are, are always trying to promote their vision of a transportation hub that exists in Baku and trade coming from China through Central to Azerbaijan onto Turkey and Europe. And then you have the Russians promoting a north-south transportation corridor, kind of avoids China, but does put Russia and Iran closer together. So I don't know exactly how it's going to sort out. China will be in this for what economic advantage they think they can get from the relationship. I don't see them at this sort of the next three years sort of having the same kind of ambition that they're showing in Central Asia, because it, it just, it's really in the too hard category. It seems to me, last week, um, also on the South Caucasus, we concluded that we should shouldn't underestimate Aliyev. Now we're concluding that we shouldn't overestimate him neither. My personal conclusion from this escapade, this adventure into uh, with Eastern Front into the South Caucasus is that all bets are on, even after Nagorno-Karabakh as Ambassador Kauslari mentioned earlier, we're still in this post-era and there's still a lot of developments, including the real possibility of renewed conflict in a form or another next year connected to the corridor territorial 
territorial integrity and beyond. And while Russia and Iran are competing and cooperating, neither them nor Turkey nor Azerbaijan for now have the upper hand in the South Caucasus. And of course, neither has the West. And so it's definitely worth continuing to monitor the region and try to understand how complicated calculations, including history, are in this part of the world. One thing we haven't mentioned, we haven't talked about domestic developments in Azerbaijan. And I think when it comes right down to it, this is whatever Aliyev says, he's he's concerned. I mean, we've seen in the last few weeks an increased campaign directed against, call it opposition, call it independent media, who've been covering particularly corruption, corruption of the first family and uh, the people who are who are around them. We've also seen the arrest and detention of Dr. Ibadoglu, the professor who had in the U.S. and the U.K., and really troubling to me, the accusations in some of the government media that students who have studied in the U.S. are somehow agents of the United States. There was uh, going to be kind of a celebration of, of alumni of various programs that the U.S. has had to bring Azerbaijani students to the U.S. Or the government media said, well, the government, the uh, security services will be watching this gathering of agents. And this is uh, this is something we haven't seen for, well, I guess I would say haven't seen in my experience in post-independent Azerbaijan, where the mere fact that some Somebody goes to the United States to study makes them essentially an enemy. Seems to me that the law of, uh, against foreign agents in forms or another is taking a hold of the region. And it seems to me, Ambassador, we ought to have you back in the new year to talk about what is going on in, inside Azerbaijan and to what extent this can have reverberations onto the Eastern Front. Until then, thank you so much for joining us. From me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Doug Burraj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on X at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for the newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.